Welcome to the West Wind Unitarian Universalist podcast. Join us in creating compassionate community. So, learning while living a teaching life. The first thing I want to address is the, word, the use of the word almighty in our John Milton reading. Um, who doesn't know who John Milton is? It's okay. There we go. John Milton wrote Paradise Lost. That's what he's probably most famous for. And uh, I really enjoyed reading Paradise Lost in college. It was a nice change from St. Thomas Aquinas and Augustine, um, but it's still a pretty heady piece of poetry. Um, I encountered it a lot more now lately because people are constantly wanting to get the fall of Lucifer tattooed on them from the plate from the Paradise Lost book. Um, but still, there it is. He wrote Paradise Lost in 1667. He wrote that freedom passage in 1644. And the way this falls out is in 1643, Milton married a very young woman, a bride of 17. And after being with her for, I don't know, six months or so, he decided he wasn't very happy with his bride, so he sent her back to live with her father. And then he decided he couldn't live without her, and he sent back to get her, and she's like, I'm not coming, I'm living with my father. And Milton was very upset, so he wrote a pamphlet saying that we need better divorce laws in England. And he sent the pamphlet out for publication and distributed it all over England, which was a real big problem because he defied um, the censorship laws of England at the time. They had a pre-publication censorship in England prior to like 1890 or 1690 or so. And the pre-publication law basically said that you cannot print a letter or a pamphlet and distribute it in the community without going to the state and making sure the state approves. And they did not approve. Um, he was pretty vocal about how we should make it easier to divorce people and he was very detrimental, negative about his wife. So, because they said that, he came back and wrote the Areopagitica, A-R-E-O-P-A-G-I-T-I-C-A. If you can say it better than me, jump up. It is a long essay in which he rails against the censorship of England, rails against the censorship of the church, and rails against the Pope. He is really angry that people are trying to tell him what he can and can't publish and what he can and can't distribute. Of this extremely long letter, whoever put together our quotes for the back of the book distilled it into these short lines that we read. And so for each individual little bit of sentence that we had back and forth, there was easily like three or four paragraphs of dense denouncement <laughs> of politicians and popes and archbishops and, you know, young brides who leave their husbands and don't come home when they're told. So... I was curious about it because I enjoyed reading it, and so I looked it up to see, you know, where it came from. And there's quite a few essays that basically say that John Milton is railing against censorship, but he was also a huge proponent of censoring Catholicism and the Pope within England. That his highfalutin views for uh, freedom of speech are freedom for his speech, not everyone's speech. And that kind of tied me into my reflection today, learning while living a teaching life. I guess it could be debated whether or not I'm a teacher. I spend an awful lot of the time talking to you guys about my thoughts, but I don't think of myself as specifically an educator. But the reason I came to this sermon title was because um, 
Well, my daughter's about to graduate from high school. Some of you people have had uh, nieces or nephews or children who have gone through school and graduated, and my daughter's getting to the end, and she's applying for colleges, and we're trying to help her figure out the path that is going to best suit her as she moves forward in her education. And my wife and I have not extremely different ideas about how that should work, but definitely they are not the same. It's okay. We both had different college experiences. Everyone in this room has had different education experiences. And so I started to reflect on what I've taught my children and what I've learned from my children. How much of me goes into them? And then I got worried because I know there are quite a few people in this congregation who do not have children, and some of you don't even like children, and so I didn't want to make the whole conversation about me and my kids. Um, and so I wanted to kind of talk about we live a life that teaches, and the way that we live a life that teaches is that we have opinions and we have thoughts and we have ways that we vote and we have jobs that we live. We project an idea of self, a narrative into the world that teaches the world who we are, right? Some people, that seems like a pretty basic, simple narrative. Um, you could look at a different wide variety of movies and be like, okay, you know, um, John Wayne, we got a pretty good standard of what he's projecting as an image, right? Um, you might look at uh, Meryl Streep and be like, oh, we got a pretty good idea of what she's projected as an image as a person. Um, I don't think that they're accurate. <laughs> um, I don't think that they are maybe even the image that those individuals want to project, but it is the media that is created and put forth, this is who they are. And so I encourage you, as a teacher of your life, to not let someone else steal your narrative, Right? Don't allow somebody else to take what you're teaching and twist it or turn it against you. That seems, doesn't seem fair. Um, kind of like what happened to Milton, right? He thought he was putting out there how he felt about divorce, and then now the whole of society crashed down on his head and said, you can't talk about it like that, and that's not what you really mean, and this is the way you should do it. And so he wrote another treatise that was just as controversial <laughs> and just as difficult to swallow, but at least he's getting his thoughts out there, right? Um, I know I'm wandering around just a little bit. I opened with uh, writings from Denise Levertov. Her marvelous truth is a poem. She was a poet from the 20th century. She was born in 1923, and she lived in 1997. In her early life, her father was a Russian Jew who eventually converted to the Anglican faith and became an Anglican minister. They moved from Russia and to England, where she went to school and had her education. Um, and depending on whose biography you're reading about her, she was either extremely influential for the movement towards women to be poets, okay, or she undermined the integrity of women poets depending on how you look at her writings. She was very much a fan of having men as mentors and turning to men for answers. And she was said to be a not very fun-loving or humorous person. She was very, very serious about what she wrote and what she said. Unfortunately, there are some writers who say that she was just left behind by the feminist movement. And by the time she was able to step forward with her own thoughts, the feminist movement had kind of moved ahead of her. Adrian Rich, who some of you might know as a poet, um, learned from Denise Leverton and learned how to be a poet from her. But Adrian Rich went on to say that, unfortunately, because of the influence of the fathers of her age, she was not able to help the women of her time. Which I think is kind of sad, because I really like that marvelous truth, that idea that we're going to find it everywhere. We're going to find it in the iron railing. We're going to find it in the steamy bathroom. We're going to find it in our cluttered kitchen. We're going to find it in the egg. We're going to find it in the black orb. We're going to find it in the wolf. 
The truth is out there to be accessed, and it is not something that has to be learned from a text, right? There's an experience to truth. And I think in living a teaching life, you have to show people that experience of truth. Kind of brings me back to my daughter and my son. So I have not always been the most politically correct person. I'm probably still not a very politically correct person, although I am a little bit more aware of it now. Um, and I find that I don't do really good with empathy unless I've had a, a similar enough experience to relate. Does that make sense? So for instance, um, my dog passed away two weeks ago. Passed away, that's not fair. We took him to the vet and we had to put him down because he was sick. It wasn't something I've ever done before. It was really uh, more tragic than I expected it to be. Um, and the best part about that experience is that my children and my wife went with me to do it. In fact, I didn't want to go at all. I tried to give everybody an out so that I could get out. Right? I was like, oh, you don't have to go with your mother to put the dog down. You can stay home with me. We'll just hang out and we'll you know, eat comfort foods. Both of my kids were like, oh, no, no, I want to be there. And I was like, oh, you know, of course, I want to be there too. <laughs> I didn't want to be there. Death kind of scares me a little bit like that, right? To look at the mortality of others and think about my own. So we went into the vet's office, and that day my dog had all the food that he loves. He got bacon and eggs, and he got to eat a little bit of tacos, and he had some cooked ham. And um, We went outside and played catch for the five minutes that he was still able to run back and forth in the yard. Um, and then we picked up my kids from school, and we put my dog on his leash, and we took him to the vet. And this is supposed to be that grown-up, I'm the adult, I'm supposed to teach you how to deal with this moment kind of situation, right? That's the way I've expected it. I've been to, like, grandparents and funerals of relatives and things like that with my children, and we've had some tragedy in our family, and so we've gone to, you know, cousins that are younger than me who've been, who've been harmed and murdered, and, and, and we've had to go to their funeral in state, and it was difficult. We've had conversations about death. I think some of you were here when I told the story of my son's guinea pig dying and how we talked about... Um, talked about that experience and how we kind of looked at death and, and, and love. None of that was very comforting to me when we took my dog to put him down. They gave my dog a shot that calms him. And we're all there. He's in our arms. And we're loving him and petting him and he's just got this big smile on his face and eventually his tongue's hanging out because he's breathing slower and slower and his tongue doesn't go back in his mouth. He's not dead. He's just really very relaxed. And my kids and I were holding him and were crying. I didn't expect to cry. I'm not a crier. I don't cry. My kids are crying. I don't know what the comfort that I'm supposed to give is, right? But I'm in the moment, and I'm there, and I'm participating. There's a second shot that needs to be given that's, that's going to end Bear's life. And my son and I decided that we couldn't sit in the room for that to happen. So we step outside. My wife and my daughter stayed in with the dog. My son and I are outside. And my son looks at me and he says, I'm so happy you came today. And I was like, oh, of course, I'm, I'm here for you guys. I'm here. And he's like, no, Bear really needed you to be there. Bear really needed you to be there. My dog needed me to be there. And I don't often think of my animals as personality people like that. Um, and so I know this is, I'm not trying to be overly emotional and sad. Um, it brings me to... Other experiences I've had in my life when close friends and family have come to me and told me that they had to put down their dog or put down their cat. I was like, oh, that's sad. I'm sorry to hear that. But there was no... If you told me your mother died, I would, I would have a visceral reaction. Does that make sense? I would feel it in my heart. 
that would hurt me to think about my mother passing in that way and to reflect on that happening to you. That I, what can I do for you? I get your casserole, right? I didn't expect that with a pet. And I didn't expect, and because I never expected that with a pet, when other people told me about their experiences, I was like, oh, I'm really sorry, that's sad. But I wasn't, I wasn't really empathizing. I was, this is what you say to someone who's feeling lost. Does that make sense? In trying to teach my kids how to deal with something that's tragic, I learned more from them in that moment than I think I gave them in that moment. I don't know if my kids feel that way, but I sure feel that way. It's definitely changed my look on the way that I think about death and think about my relationship with my pets, right? I was doing a tattoo yesterday, and this, this guy I was tattooing, um, we started talking about dogs, and he's had dogs, and he's talking about his dogs, and I was like, oh, we just had to put my dog down recently. And he literally like welled up, and he's like, that's really hard. It's really hard. I've never been that person, does that make sense, who welled up when somebody else had had that situation. And I honestly thought that I would not be the kind of person that would take that kind of emotional response very well. But it was really comforting. It was comforting to know that someone else felt like I did. He had had to put down his dogs in the past. He had had pets past. So I know this is all kind of, oh, it's a little heavy. It brings me back to two quotes from those two different readings. Truth confronts us. That's Milton. And truth is, I'm sorry, truth confronts us. That is Denise Leverton. Truth is strong. That's John Milton. There is an overpowering undeniability to truth. It's not always immediately comforting, right? You don't always feel comfortable with truth. Sometimes it can be almost blindingly difficult to look at or be in its presence. Sometimes it's easier to turn away, right? But I really like the way that Milton pointed out that the light that you're given by truth is not so that you can just point straight ahead forever. The light is so that you can discover in the darkness more light. That is what leading a teaching life is, right? Everyone in this room is an expert at something. I know you might be thinking to yourself, well, I'm not an expert at anything. Think about it again. Maybe you're just really good at making eggs, right? Maybe you're a fantastic writer. Maybe you're a really good architect. Maybe you're just a really good driver. You've never had an accident. There's all kinds of things that you can be good at. And in turning what that expertise is into a teaching moment, you get to learn in that teaching moment. There's only so much, there's only so much you can read and absorb through lecture without doing, right? If I were to stand up here and describe to you the process of creating your own pigment and your own paint and stretching your own canvas to create a painting, you might be like, oh, that's interesting, sure, fine, whatever. The retention of that knowledge is going to be difficult. If I had all of us set up our own little stations and we walked through physically making all those things happen, you'd have a pretty good understanding of how to do it that exact way I told you to do it. If you go home and practice and get really good at it, maybe you find a way to make a better color, get a better saturation, get a tighter stretch, that's awesome for you. But it's not until you take that knowledge and turn around to disseminate it as authority 
that you really get the depth of the integrity of that truth. The depth of the integrity of the truth of the missing and indigenous women. The depth of the integrity and truth of uh, systemic racism or systemic um, marginality of people of uh, LGBTQ or women. The, it is not until we learn information and return it out. I guess the way I would think of it is this way. While you are learning, you are given a certain amount of pass to that knowledge. Does that make sense? You can go on to look and see if the information you're given comes from a reliable source. You can go on to see, you know, whose opinions about this and this and this. You can look at other critics, right? When you teach, you are the authoritative source. You are now culpable for that information that you've disseminated to that group. You have taken responsibility for that truth and the shape that you've given it within society. We do not have a really strong framework for culpability within our congregation. Does that make sense? You individually are not going... Oh, okay, let me rephrase that. I am never going to tell you you're going to hell if you do or don't do something. I am never going to tell you that the Quran or the Devatna Gita tell you these things, this is the way you're supposed to act. I am not going to judge you if you're not supporting the four pillars of Buddhism, the seven pillars of Buddhism. I can't remember how many pillars there are. There's a lot. It holds up a whole building. It's okay. What I can do is with integrity, teach you that information, learn it in the betterment of myself, but in giving that information, I can't obscure or color the truth. It is necessary for me to address it honestly and openly. It is important to be in that moment. I could not have had the conversation about death and the love that we had for our pet with my children if I was not there having that experience. I could not have learned from my son if I had not been vulnerable enough to be there to learn. If your only goal as a teacher is to show your superiority, you have undermined the integrity of what you're doing. There has to be a certain amount of vulnerability to allow somebody else to be vulnerable to accept your message. There has to be an understanding that there might be questions that you don't know that we're going to look further into. There's a give and take there, right? If all we're doing is passing on all of our great wisdom and we're never taking any in, then we're undermining the integrity of living, learning while teaching, right? Our life should continue to grow. Our light should not just be showing that one path directly in front of us. We've got to move the flashlight around so we can see other and illuminate others and give other people an opportunity to have that shine. So what I want to leave you with today is this concept. When we go out in the world and we want to teach our lives, Teach our integrity and teach our truth. Try to maintain the vulnerability of self in that process. Try to acknowledge in that space that there is an opportunity to learn from the person you're trying to teach. My wife pointed out that very often someone's criticism or complaint or negative response to your information has to do with something that they have that may not even have to do with your information. Does that make sense? There, for instance, fear of immigrants might have nothing to do with an actual fear of immigration or people coming from a foreign country. 
their fear of immigrants might have, very to, have to do with a childhood experience that they had that was negative that made them project onto an entire people. They're not arguing with you about this grand policy. They're arguing with you about their fear and self. And if we can't be vulnerable enough to acknowledge that fear, then it, all we are is on, that, is on that elitist horse projecting down and passing judgment as opposed to teaching and trying to lift everyone up into the same space. It is difficult to acknowledge that as the expert, we don't know all the answers. But we're not all experts in every aspect of everything. And so that vulnerability is necessary. I ask you to go forth in the world and teach your life while learning to be a better person, while learning to make your life a better space. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Unitarian Universalism and to connect with us, please visit www.westwinduuc.org or find us on Facebook at Westwind Unitarian Universalist Congregation. Welcome to the Westwind Unitarian Universalist Podcast. Join us in creating compassionate community.